It's my favorite place mm -hmm. We know plagues are bad But this is the name of the podcast It's my favorite place Hi, I'm Elise Arduino. And I'm Jeffrey Todd Knuckles, and welcome to My Favorite Plague. Doing our part in this most recent plague, we bravely stayed home and watched television. Discovering a fascination with plagues, we also kept discussing what our behaviors during a plague said about us and our society. We thought you might enjoy this conversation as well, so every episode, we pick a plague and each present our favorite thing about that plague. After presenting our favorite thing, we discuss what we think it all means. We have created uh, discussion boards on our website, myfavoriteplague.com, so we can hear your opinions and ideas. Too soon? We don't think so. Probably too late, if you ask us. What plague is this? Hi, I'm Heather, and I'm going to tell you all about cholera. It's a nasty disease made more terrible by the fact that all you need to avoid getting it is to have access to clean drinking water. But it is still with us. Cholera is death by diarrhea, but can also be accompanied by vomiting and muscle cramps. There have been seven cholera epidemics, and one is currently ongoing. If you have access to treatment, the death rate is 5%. But without treatment, it is 50%. What is the magical treatment that makes such a difference? Rehydration. That's it. Cholera goes hand in hand with poverty. That much is clear. Now it's time for Todd and Elise to tell you their favorite things about cholera. And now it's time for Todd. Welcome to the cholera episode of My Favorite Plague. Before we get started... I want to thank our first four members. Fabulous. Thank uh, you. Yes, thank you so much. We would like to thank Lisa, Anne, Allison, and Jennifer. You are all members of the Plague Hut, and we're so happy to have Welcome you. Welcome to the Plague Hut. My favorite part of the cholera story uh, that I uh, discovered while I was doing my research is, uh, is really the story of the gentleman named uh, Jon Snow. Uh, I had never heard of him before, and but I don't think Jon Snow is that obscure, especially if you are in the medical field, as he is considered the father of epidemiology. If you aren't sure of the meaning, epidemiology is the study of the incidence, distribution, and possible control of diseases and other factors relating to public health. Uh, in other words, they're kind of disease detectives. Uh, Jon Snow was born in York in England, and started work at an apothecary, which is sort of an old-world pharmacist, an old-world pharmacy. He was, uh, he was young. He was only 14 and when he was working there, and he was attending to the sick. And while doing this, uh, obviously intelligent, he began to study uh, what worked and what didn't work in terms of helping people feel better. If he wanted to continue his study of medicine, he had to move to the big city. However, so the big city being London, 
Uh, and he he did. He moved to the big city and he attended the University of London. He was not born into a wealthy family. He uh, so he couldn't really hire a horse or a carriage to take him. He was uh, so uh, young. John Snow walked oh two hundred or so miles uh, from York to London to become a doctor. So even then he was persistent. And I I'm at, I. Uh, when I read this, I, it did, uh, you know, uh, spark my imagination. What was that walk like? Well, it's also so incredible. I'm so spoiled. I could barely make it to an 8 a.m. class, taking my education completely for granted. If someone said, oh, you have to walk 200 miles to get to your school, that would have meant I didn't go to school. <laughs> I, I, I met, What I thought was that I imagined that at least a night or two, I would imagine it took days, and I would think that he probably had to sleep under the stars a few nights, and that had to be kind of scary. There were probably banditos roaming about the countryside. But I digress. Good so digression. Gonna, Good digression. Okay. We're going to jump ahead in time because he was such an accomplished guy. There's a lot, to, just too much to discuss, and I want to focus on cholera. But uh, Jon Snow became a groundbreaking anesthesiologist and pioneered the metered use of ether during surgical procedures. Uh, init- initially, ether was unreliable because people could wake up in the middle of the procedure, or even worse, they would never wake up. And so Snow uh, collaborated with a surgeon's instrument maker named Daniel Ferguson and created an inhaler that would control the doses, dosage excuse me, of ether. He published a paper in 1848 called On the Inhalation of Vapor of Ether in Surgical Operations and changed the world for the first time. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, so another fun fact about Jon Snow is that he was an administrator of chloroform and he was summoned to attend Queen Victoria uh, during her childbirth and gave her chloroform for the birth of at least, of her last two children. And this was a revolution and allowed other women to request chloroform as its use had been normalized by the queen. This isn't part of the main story, but this guy was so accomplished, you know, it's um, pretty amazing. So in 1854, there was an outbreak of cholera in Soho, a part of London. Uh, It's a neighborhood in London, in case you don't know. At the time, the prevailing theory was that cholera was transmitted through miasma. So miasma, the miasma theory actually can go all the way back to ancient Rome when uh, Rome was a malarial city. Um, and so they would reduce, they, they had a couple of swamps that were or around Rome. They reduced the, they, they reduced the swamps. Drained. They, they drained the swamps and, and they thought, oh, okay, so we got rid of the foul smelling air. So therefore, you know, malaria, the malaria decreased. What actually, what that did was get rid of the mosquitoes that was carrying that were carrying uh, the disease. So, so they the, thought the, mal- that mal- ma- miasma was basically bad air, right? And so that, and so miasma, you know, that carried all through the plague in the Middle Ages. In Soho, people were mainly concerned about getting cholera from bad air. Now, John Snow had his doubts about his theory and devised a way to track the cholera outbreaks to investigate the source. He relied on scientific method and his own powers of observation, of course, to do this. And he faced an, a, a bit of opposition uh, when he did so. And I feel like this is another example of a person who, you know, kind of 
went ahead to, you know, and tackle an enormous problem for no other, no other reason than it was the right thing to do. And I think he was driven by a strong sense of scientific curiosity. It just didn't make sense. The, the, the way that people were saying the miasma worked just didn't seem to make sense to him. So he, you know, did some scientific data collecting. Now, it's doing a disservice, in my opinion, to the man and uh, to do a really brief description of his work in cholera that I'm about to do. But books have been written about his efforts, so I'm going to do the best I can and give you all the, all the key points here. It all started with a map. Uh, John, John Snow made a map of Soho and identified where people were dying. Like, well, two people died here and four people died there, etc. He couldn't understand if the disease was transmitted by bad, bad air, why only people in certain areas got sick when people in much worse areas were fine. He also didn't understand if the disease were airborne, why was it affecting the gut first? After a lot of investigation... The map was able to show that there was a correlation between death from cholera and a particular water source, the Broad Street Pump. People got their water from a from kind of a public pump that was just in the street. Uh, this led John Snow to believe that rather than being transferred through bad air, the disease was waterborne, which was a revolutionary idea at the time. In addition to being a new theory that went against conventional wisdom, people were very resistant to the idea that they had been ingesting feces with their water and thus contracting cholera. I mean, you know, so I don't blame them because that's that's pretty gross. You know, that's, that's kind of nasty. So the story goes that it could have been a woman tossing cholera-infected diapers into a cesspit, pit, excuse me, which was only three feet away. And it's possible that these diapers, again, the seepage of cholera into the Broad Street pump, although this is not known for sure. People were attracted to this pump because the water was nice and cold. And some people were protected from cholera because they largely consumed their fluids by drinking tea or beer. And the process used to make both drinks requiring, uh, required heating uh, the beverage to a temperature that killed cholera. So, also, the tea itself uh, reportedly has like an astringent uh, quality that made it difficult for waterborne illness illnesses to survive which was an additional protection that could be transmitted from breast milk to babies. So tea, a good thing. Unfortunately, Jon Snow's theories were not accepted during his time, and his essay on the mode of communication of cholera did not uh, do very well. And ironically, it was William Farr, who had originally opposed Snow's ideas, who caused his uh, theories to be reconsidered. Uh, the data he collected helped pr uh, promote Snow's views and made critical strides in maintaining safe water to prevent cholera. This wasn't the end of the story as people resisted embracing the fecal-oral route uh, theory for a long time, but it was easy, easier to say we all need to drink boiled water than to say we all need, need to stop drinking poo water. So advancements in public safety could be made regardless of whether people believed his theories. I guess it's obvious why this is my favorite thing about cholera. Uh, Jon Snow was the lone hero guided only by his intellect and uh, willingness to accept new ideas and clearly, uh, you know, significant self-confidence. In my opinion, he's sort of like the Gary Cooper of epidemiology. Uh, <laughs> if you've never seen the movie High Noon, uh, Gary Cooper plays the marshal and the bad guys want to exact revenge on him and then 
No one in the town will help him. He does it all on his own, except, of course, you know, the lovely, uh, the the lovely female. Uh, so uh, he just kind of they're all you know the marshal deal with it, and he does. Um, so. Jon Snow is kind of like the Gary Cooper of High Noon, in my opinion. Uh, also, he was not a person born to wealth and privilege. And I admire someone. You got to admire someone who walks 200 miles to achieve their goals and probably had to work at least twice as hard, you know, as some of those around him. His father was a farmer and he pretty probably could have been a farmer, too. But, hey, he had a, a, a bigger vision. And I think that's a rare quality. And we are all the better for it. So there. Yeah. No, I agree. Jon Snow's the the man. So I have a question for you. Yes. Was it... Un- so he... I always thought in olden times that if your dad was a farmer, you became a farmer. If your dad was a blacksmith, you became a blacksmith. Was it weird that he didn't become a farmer like his dad and went to London to become a doctor? Uh, I read a book called The Ghost Map. And in the book, uh, The Ghost Map said this is kind of, you know, what was happening at the time. Yes. What time period was this? uh, This was in the 1840s, 18, you know, the 1800s, the Victorian times. And uh, cities were getting bigger. And yes, for most people uh, for centuries, you know. My father before me was a bead maker, and I am a bead maker. Um, but here was a guy who clearly showed talent and inclination, and uh, he had opportunity, and he could have stayed, I suppose, and been an apothecaryist or what have you. But he, you know, lots of people were moving to the, the big city. Um, so this was a big social change where yeah, people People were... Kind were kind of going, you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm when they've seen <laughs> the big city? And uh, he went to the big city, went to, to the University of London to become a doctor. Uh, and I suppose, you know, being an apothecaryist or a pharmacist or whatever, you, you weren't really expanding your intellect or your knowledge of medicine. I think you just kind of mixed up potions and whatnot and probably treated people with what you had yeah i mean you know no you've opportunity heard, right. for research yeah you you know making a good tourniquet you know right wow that's great yeah he's John's, great john snow was 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 a good guy yep, yep. all right well thank you mm. and now it's time for elise My favorite thing about the cholera epidemic seems a little counterintuitive. I'm going to discuss the cholera riots in the early to mid-1800s. There were other cholera riots, notably in England and Italy, but today we're focusing on Russia because, once again, they're in the spotlight because their war with Ukraine produced cases of cholera in Maripol and has placed that city at risk of another cholera outbreak once again. Cholera originally came to Russia in 1831. Russian officials and the medical community originally thought that the outbreak was an opportunity to showcase the modernization of Russia and all its excellent medical care. However, much of Russia was not on board with that plan, largely because the plight of the poor in Russia was terrible, and you can't fix cholera if you don't improve the quality of the drinking water for everyone. When St. Petersburg was hit with cholera, its sewage system was not great. While it's nice to have a city on a river for a lot of reasons, simultaneously dumping sewage into the river 
and using that same water for drinking create some problems. But at this point, no one knew that untreated water was spreading cholera. So the people of Russia began to look for other causes. Other regions of the Russian Empire, which was very large at that time, notably Baku, Saratov, and Tashkent, had similar issues. And the government's method of trying to, re- to eradicate cholera created a perfect environment for the riots. All regions created harsh quarantine measures, and these measures affected the poor far more than the elites and effectively criminalized both the sick and the poor. The quarantine measures shut down small businesses and required strict and largely ineffective practices for cleaning that the poor could ill afford, and they were provided with no support for doing doing the cleaning by the state. The state's failure to recognize that the epidemic had occurred meant that the epidemic had a strong foothold before any measures were taken. So once the measures were attempted, Russia was already in crisis. Many of the required measures were distributed in pamphlets, but with illiteracy rates being extremely high among the poor, this made compliance almost impossible. The police were the enforcers of these methods, and their brutality and ignorance of the proper procedures only widened the rift between the government and the poor. Additionally, in many regions, the requirement to report anyone who was ill created an atmosphere of suspicion and mistrust. Rumors began to take hold, and much of the anger was directed toward medical professionals. Riots began to occur at hospitals, with protesters seeking to liberate the patients from the hospitals. Rioters began to accuse the police and doctors of poisoning the poor in an effort to get rid of them, like a biological genocide. In Russia, there was a large gap between those who believed in westernization and those who embraced traditional Russian ways. That gap also helped to create distrust. There were demands for the death of all doctors, And in some areas, rage focused on colonized Muslims as the cause for the disease. Riots took hold all over the empire, requiring military intervention and once even the direct intervention of the czar to put down a riot. So why is this my favorite thing? I worked in healthcare during COVID. I'm an x-ray tech, but because I work in an urgent care, I also function as a medical assistant. I have experienced the rage of people directed at healthcare workers directly. One time, having a man who was hooked up to oxygen because of his COVID symptoms scream at me that I was part of the plot to make money off a fake epidemic. I wish, I wish I was making some money off of that. It's oddly comforting to know that this wasn't unique and helps me to understand these actions a little better. To be honest, I don't trust the American healthcare system. It is a profit-driven business, and drug companies pushed opiates for years, claiming they weren't addictive. What the Russian riots tell me is that if there is already significant mistrust in these organizations, it is unrealistic to expect people to embrace a solution proposed by the very same people that they don't trust. I became vaccinated as soon as I could. And I became very angry at patients who refused to be vaccinated, but then had no problem seeking medical care for their symptoms and exposing me to the virus. But at that point, I was a symbol of the mistrust in the whole system. It's not fair, but very little about the situation was fair. 
people are right to be suspicious. And if that suspicion and mistrust weren't already present, like it was in Russia, people would have likely been more enthusiastic about the vaccine. Their mistrust is not a sign of their isolation or stupidity. It is a sign of the failures of government and a healthcare system that serves no one well but those who make money off of it. I cannot say that I understand why the Russian poor rioted and withhold that understanding from the Americans who didn't want the vaccine. I get it. I hated living through it, but this research really helped me to understand it and gave me some compassion that I didn't have before we did this research. Heavy. Yeah, it is heavy, but it's true. I mean, me working in healthcare during COVID was part of the inspiration for this podcast, and I'm really um, touched that it gave me some additional insight. So what do you think the difference between uh, resistance then and resistance now is, was, is? <laughs> is, was. I think, in my opinion, the difference is about information. The result ended up being the same, which I think is kind of scary. So the Russians had no information, largely illiterate. Um, they couldn't get a hold of accurate data, so they used the senses of their eyes and the advice of the people that they trusted and loved. So if someone goes into the hospital and dies, I get it. You start to think that that's where people go to die. Understandable. And if people are making you go in quarantine and you're losing all your money, I, I get it. You, you don't trust them. So they didn't have any information, and so they were left to draw their own conclusions. Conversely, in the COVID epidemic, I feel like people had a lot of information, but when that same distrust was present, they would only trust certain sources of information that they felt, for better or worse, for whatever reason, but felt had earned their trust. And so you can have a lot of access to inner information, but your values and your beliefs dictate which information sources you listen to. And so in the end, there's a similar response, regardless of whether you have no information and make your own conclusions or have a lot of information, you still make your own conclusions. And so I think that's what's different is that they all had different ways of making their decisions. But at the end of the day, their decisions were kind of the same. And definitely the riots, I think, were more severe in Russia but they were also hungrier, more their livelihood depended, was much more close to the bone. So they had a lot more riding on the quarantine measures. It was a much more uh, real thing, although plenty of people in America lost their livelihood during COVID. Okay. Hmm. okay. All right. All right. Well, that's it. That's cholera. That's cholera. We want to thank you very much and join us for the next part of the podcast. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? When Todd and I began discussing what all of this means, I think what spoke to both of us most clearly was that pandemics are a huge, pervasive issue. And they are not wiped out by medicine alone. I think when you are dealing with a pandemic, 
All the cracks that exist in the society will get wider. Everything that's a problem before the pandemic becomes a bigger problem. Yeah, it's like lifting up the carpet, seeing all the Ugh. all the nasty stuff. Yeah, that's a up. good analogy. Yeah. So if you don't deal with the underlying social issues and the belief systems of the people you are trying to serve, then you are not going to be able to, unless you're very lucky, you're not going to be able to get rid of a disease because people will resist you if they don't trust you. Right. And so you have to earn their trust and that's not easy to do, you know, I mean, that's not easy to do even like, you know, take Jon Snow, for example, he was not an elitist. He was someone that was, he was someone that, you know, he came from, uh, you know, a humble, extremely humble, uh, um, uh, beginnings and, uh, still he was a doctor. And so, a doctor, part of the, you know, elite structure, part of the, of the authoritarian authority structure, um, is the person that comes and tells you, Hey, you know, this water that's nice and clean and cold. And, you know, it was clear. That was one of the things I don't know if I mentioned that is that when he took samples of water from different pumps, he was surprised because he thought, Oh, I'll take water from this pump. This is the pump. I think it is. It was actually clear. Uh, and other pumps were kind of dirty, but so the one that he thought was, was contaminated, you know, they were like, no, this is the clear, good water. And here's a doctor like, what, what do you know? You know, I need water, you know, so. Right. And he didn't have to live in that neighborhood. Ironically or interestingly, who did live in that neighborhood where the Broad Street Pump was? All oh, the poor people. It was the poor neighborhood. And Karl Marx. Oh, Karl Marx, who, yeah, that's a whole other. He lived other. 200 yards from the Broad Street Pump. And he, keen, like him, hate him feel indifferent he was a keen observer of social conditions and he was right there for the um cholera epidemic and it happens poor people were more seriously affected because the quality of their water was worse and their treatment was largely administered both in russia and in england by people who were higher on the social ladder than they were. And these people did not make seemingly any attempt to try to meet the people where they were at. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And so I think that same thing happened with COVID. We, as a society, very quickly went on pro vaccine, anti vaccine battle lines. And I get it. We were all scared, but I do wonder if that sort of, trend of what people do when vaccines or cures or scientific breakthroughs happen, there's always going to be people who distrust it. And that has to be factored in in the future. You just have to assume that. You can't assume that everyone's going to believe you. And this has been a really um, helpful episode for me. It's evolved my thinking a little bit about how, because the, the, COVID pandemic, especially the pre-vaccine COVID pandemic, was pretty terrible for me. And I had a lot of strong feelings at the time. But this episode has helped me make some peace with a lot of that. The little gray cells are working. Yes, my little gray cells are working. How about you? You were with me during the COVID pandemic and you were pretty angry. Has it helped you at all or not really? 
Um, oh, I don't know. It's interesting, you know. I, 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 as far as you know, when people, as far as the vaccine goes, when people were like, I don't trust, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Well, I don't trust them either, especially after the opioid um, uh, situation. Uh, why, why should they? You know, um, they, they seem to be big time legal drug pushers, and they got away with essentially a slap on the wrist. You know, right. and so. They're the same people that are saying, oh, uh, this um, this will inoculate you. You know, oh, I should trust them. They, they seem to be able to do whatever they want and make millions, you know. So, yeah, I understood that at the time. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, that that that's a whole other uh, whole other podcast. rather boring story for me. Okay. So, you know, right. I, I liked it. I like to I like this this. Uh, story of Jon Snow. What a what a good guy. Right. And so what we think it all means at the end of the day is that pandemics can't be isolated as purely a medical problem. They are deeply entrenched in the society where they spring up. And you cannot create just a medical solution without looking at the society where the disease is occurring. I would like to there's a there's a Jon Snow pub in England. Oh, and uh, I, one day I hope to go there and, you know, uh, raise, raise a glass to, uh, to the late, great Jon Snow. Anyone going to England, go to the Jon Snow pub and take a picture and send it to us. There you go. So uh, we want to thank you all and we want to thank the people who are becoming members. Again, um, you can listen to this podcast anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate us and if you want to, give us a review. Also, please go to myfavoriteplague.com and become a member. And that membership will support us with new equipment and being able, we just got a fancy new microphone. I hope this sounds better with um, the money we got from some members joining. We bought, plowed it right back into the podcast with this gorgeous microphone. So we're on Instagram. We're on Instagram. That's right. We're on Instagram. So we appreciate your support. Thank you. Hello, thank you for listening to the cholera episode of My Favorite Plague. We would especially like to thank Heather for her absolutely stellar introduction of cholera. Please rate and follow us wherever it is you're listening to this podcast. We'd really appreciate the support. And if you'd like to, please go to myfavoriteplague.com and become a member that way you get a lot more episodes and can keep having fun all day long. Thank you again and have a lovely and plague-free day.